All Bones Considered, Laurel Hill Stories, number 22, for January 2021. The birds and the bees, the ornithologists and entomologists of Laurel Hill and West Laurel Hill cemeteries. most Americans, who are the famous American ornithologists? They could probably come up with John James Audubon and maybe Roger Torrey Peterson, and then they would probably pause. But bird watchers know better and can probably tell you a few famed Philadelphians involved in birding. John Casson, who described 194 new species of birds in his lifetime and has five species of North American birds named in his honor. Explorer, artist, and photographer Titian Ramsey Peel, son of Charles Wilson Peel, meticulous illustrator of birds and other wildlife, whose artworks are as highly sought as those of Audubon. Titian's older and less well-known half-sister, Sophonisba Angusciola Peel Sellers, America's first female ornithologist, and Whitmer Stone, who worked for more than 50 years in the ornithology department at the Academy of Natural Sciences. But even avid bird watchers may not know about the father and son oologists, Joseph Parker Norris, senior and junior, who had the largest collection of bird eggs in the United States. And since the show is about the birds and the bees, I'll talk about entomologist Dr. John Lawrence LeCant, who was responsible for naming and describing approximately half of the insect taxa known in the United States during his lifetime, and his younger partner, Dr. George Henry Horn, and naturalist and entomologist Dr. Thomas Bellerby Wilson, who spent his personal fortune buying collections from around the world for the Academy of Sciences. Even if you've never lusted after a pair of Vortex Diamondback HD binoculars, I think you'll enjoy this episode of All Bones Considered, Laurel Hill Stories, The Birds and the Bees. Human beings have been observing birds and insects since ancient times. Stone carvings from prehistory show both, and several bird species and the scarab beetle are common in Egyptian hieroglyphs. Ornithology as a scientific discipline began only in the 18th century, when Carl Linnaeus assigned every known organism a binomial name, categorized into genus and species. But ornithology did not blossom as a specialized science until the Victorian era, with the simultaneous popularization of natural history and the collection of natural objects, such as bird eggs, oology, and skins. American entomology essentially began in 1817 with the publication of the first volume of Thomas Say's American Entomology in Philadelphia. 
Say was also a conchologist and a herpetologist. Some of the illustrations were done by Titian Peel. More about both of them later. Now, John James Audubon does have a Pennsylvania connection. He's not buried at Laurel Hill Cemetery or West Laurel Hill Cemetery. As an 18-year-old, he emigrated from France to the United States in 1802 to avoid being drafted during the Napoleonic Wars. He lived at Mill Grove, a 284-acre homestead on the Perkyoman Creek, just a short distance from Valley Forge. It's about 20 miles from Philadelphia. He was only there for six years, but he apparently visited Charles Wilson Peale's Nature Museum long enough to get the idea to build a museum of his own. Now, Audubon's career is fascinating, but it's beyond the scope of this podcast because he's buried in Trinity Church Cemetery in New York City. For ornithology and entomology to become professional disciplines, some conditions were required. First, there had to be enough basic data to help develop answers to interesting and rewarding questions to move the discipline forward. Next, appropriate institutional frameworks had to exist where these questions could be investigated, discussed, resolved, and cataloged. Finally, certain technical problems that had previously impeded the study of ornithology had to be solved. For instance, in ornithology, taxidermy or nessology was a big technical problem. The preservation of bird skins for future study was difficult and somewhat slow to develop. The permanence of bird collections depends on proper methods of preparation and preservation. One of the earliest methods of taxidermy was to strip the skin and stuff it with an inert substance, such as hay or flax, and then soak it in strong brandy for up to six weeks. This worked very well as a preservative. However, it did not prevent insects from destroying the specimens. Embalming fluids failed for the same reason. An early French taxidermist shared his own method. A dry stuffing compound made of corrosive sublimate, mercuric chloride, saltpeter, alum, sulfur, musk, pepper, and ground tobacco. And an external coating of liquid varnish made of raw turpentine, camphor, and spirit of turpentine. But even with this method, the birds had to be occasionally baked in an oven to destroy insect eggs. By 1830, a technique using arsenic preservation was becoming better known. Charles Wilson Peale had been using it in some of his specimens as early as the late 18th century. Added to other ingredients, arsenic not only helped preserve the stuffed skins, but warded off insect invaders. Unfortunately, in those days before rubber and vinyl gloves, the taxidermists themselves would absorb the arsenic and develop the classic signs of arsenic poisoning, headaches, confusion, diarrhea, and eventually seizures, coma, and death. Just as mercury poisoning was a common occupational hazard for hat makers, arsenic poisoning affected many taxidermists. The Natural Sciences Museum, public or private, started as a place like Peel's to charm the curious visitor with nature's beauty and richness. But they were also places of education. Early ornithologists' primary concerns were to classify and compile lists of birds. 
For the information to become useful, the lists and descriptions had to get bigger and bigger, and the collections larger and larger, and the information had to be more readily available to other ornithologists. Most major ornithologists were associated with specific collections, either private or museum-based. Now, during the first decades of the United States, Philadelphia was its cultural capital. Two of the city's institutions, the Library Company, founded in 1731, and the American Philosophical Society, founded in 1743, both by Benjamin Franklin, were centers of enlightened thought and scientific inquiry. The Lewis and Clark expedition of 1803 to 1806 showed the need for an increased sophistication for knowledge surrounding the earth and life sciences. It also showed a growing awareness of what seemed at the time an infinite variety of life and landscape in the American wilderness that was still waiting to be discovered. Most of the Lewis and Clark specimens ended up at the Charles Wilson Peale Museum in Philadelphia, as there was no official National Museum. In the winter of 1812, a small group of naturalists established an organization at 121 North 2nd Street. It was an academy meant to foster the gathering of fellow naturalists and to nurture the growth and credibility of American science. They wanted to be regarded as equals with their European counterparts. And on 25 April 1817, the Pennsylvania legislature allowed them to incorporate under the name of the Academy of Natural Sciences of Philadelphia. All three of these historic societies, the Library Company, the Philosophical Society, and the Academy still exist in Center City, Philadelphia. A few years later, the Academy became an original subscriber to Audubon's catalog of the Birds of America. Their intact double elephant folio is on display, and every weekday at 3.15 p.m., a page is carefully turned to show another of the 435 prints. We're going to start today with two children of the nation's first museum founder. Sophonisba Angusciola Peel Sellers, 1786 to 1859, buried at West Laurel Hill Cemetery, and Titian Ramsey Peel II, 1799 to 1885, Laurel Hill Cemetery. If you were a child of Charles Wilson Peel, odds were pretty good that you would be named after one of his favorite painters and you would become either a painter or a natural scientist. Peel, remembered today as a painter of founding fathers and founder of the Peel Museum, is buried at St. Peter's Episcopal Church, Third and Pine. Among his children from his first marriage were Raphael, the first professional American still-life painter, Angelica Kaufman, named for his favorite female painter, a Swiss neoclassical stylist of the 17th century, Rembrandt, portrait painter, Titian Ramsey I, an ornithologist who died at age 18 of yellow fever, Rubens, museum administrator who had to quit art due to poor eyesight, Sophonisba Angusciola, ornithologist and artist, more about her soon, and Sibylla Merriam, named for Maria Sibylla Marion, a 17th century German-born naturalist and scientific illustrator. With his second wife, 
He had Benjamin Franklin Peel, naturalist and paleontologist, and Titian Ramsey Peel II, born a year after the death of his stepbrother and who more or less became all of the above. Two other Peel children, Van Dyke and Rosalba Carriera, died when very young. Now, much of the information on Sophonisba Angusciola is taken from the website Matthew W. Haley, H-A-L-L-E-Y, dot wordpress dot com. He is a worker at the Academy of Natural Sciences of Drexel University. Sophonisba Angusciola Peel Sellers, 1786-1859, known by the nickname Soapy, was an American artist and a noted quilt maker who is best remembered as the first woman in America to collect and prepare bird specimens for scientific study. Soapy was born in Philadelphia, the daughter of Charles and his first wife, Rachel Brewer Peel. She was named after the Italian Renaissance painter Sofonisba Angisola, 1532-1865, but she was given an Americanized spelling. She grew up surrounded by her father's natural history collection, displayed in his museum on the second floor of what is now Independence Hall. It included hundreds of mounted stuffed birds. In early 1803, at age 17, Soapy trained with her father and learned to collect and prepare bird specimens using his arsenic method for taxidermy. Charles had also trained one of his enslaved men, Moses Williams, who was raised in the Peel household, how to do taxidermy as well as how to do cutout shadow portraits. Later in 1803, Charles proudly wrote to Soapy's brothers Rembrandt and Rubens. I am now amidst my hurry of preserving birds. Sophonisba not only preserving them well, but she also accompanies me in my hunting excursions and is now fond of shooting with the little fusee. That's a type of single-barrel shotgun that was common in 18th century America. During the Philadelphia yellow fever epidemic of 1803, Soapy and her father remained in the city and worked on renovations to the museum. She spent several months relabeling the birds, copying the Latin binomials, and following the Linnaean system. Her father commented in other letters how much her work had improved the accuracy of information about the specimens. Sophonisba Angusciola Peel married engineer and inventor Coleman Sellers in 1805. She got away from taxidermy and more into quilting. One of her quilts is owned by the Philadelphia Museum of Art, although it's not presently on display. Soapy and Coleman had two daughters and four sons. She died in Upper Darby, Pennsylvania in 1859 at the age of 73. She was initially buried at New Jerusalem Burial Ground in Upper Darby, but reinterred in the Sellers plot at West Laurel Hill Cemetery, Lansdowne Section, Lot 390. Titian Ramsey Peel II was born to Charles and his second wife, Elizabeth de Peister, in 1799. He was named not only for the Italian Renaissance painter, but for his recently deceased half-brother, an up-and-coming ornithologist and Soapy's older brother. He had died at age 18 the prior year from yellow fever. In other words, for Titian too, a lot was going to be expected of him. Like many of the early 19th century naturalists, Titian was self-taught. Unlike many, he focused many of his talents into artistic achievements. 
As a child, while older sister Soapy was stuffing and categorizing birds, Titian was assigned the job of coloring backdrops for his father's museum displays. As a teenager, he was drawing insects in watercolor. He learned the lithographic technique and started publishing illustrations. By the time he was 17, the self-styled Dr. T.R. Peel of Gerard Street was an eager insect collector and by far the youngest member of the newly incorporated Academy of the Natural Sciences. Peel's museum allowed his children first-hand observation of specimens and field sketches. Charles and Titian thought it was important for people to see the specimens, especially those from the Lewis and Clark expedition, because the U.S. government had spent hundreds of thousands of dollars financing, gathering, and cataloging them. In 1817, before he turned 18, Titian's father allowed him to accompany zoologist George Ord, geologist William McClure, and naturalist Thomas Say, the father of American entomology, on an expedition to Florida to gather specimens. Titian was also a first-rate marksman and to do direct illustrations of several new mammals. As is usually the case with nature artists in the field, he used watercolors. The raw materials were much more easily handled in the field than oils. He also became quite good at illustrating exotic creatures from traveling menageries, drawing living gazelles and polar bears far from their homelands. By now, Audubon recognized Titian Peel as a rival, but they ended up becoming friends. Many years later, Titian was one of several ornithologists who revealed that many of Audubon's famous illustrations were fraud, either plagiarized from other artists or in several cases completely imaginary and never seen by any other naturalist. Following the death of Charles Wilson Peel in 1827, Titian's involvement in the museum became greater and his output of drawings started to taper off. He traveled to Colombia, South America in 1831 and journeyed up the Rio Magdalena as far as Bogota, returning with 500 birds and 50 mammals for the museum. He took over management of the museum in 1833 and he continued to go on scientific expeditions, including one with Captain William L. Hudson in 1840. Hudson would later make a name for himself when his group laid the first transatlantic cable in 1857. Tisha did not enjoy himself on the journey. Hudson's notes from the voyage stated that, quote, what bread we had on board was literally alive and that his steward routinely began soaking his ration, quote, to keep it on the plate, and as he said, prevent the worms from running off with it, end quote. After the expedition's return in 1842, Peel had a falling out with the organizing groups, and in 1848, he was removed from the payroll of the scientific corps. And in 1851, a fire at the Library of Congress destroyed almost all 100 copies of his published zoological report. In 1853, another report, written by John Casson, more about him in a minute, was substituted. Having mastered the skills of ornithology, taxidermy, watercolor, and lithography, by the middle of the 19th century, he turned to entomology. 
Titian Peel's skills in preparation and preservation of insects were also probably unmatched in the country. Many of the butterflies that he stored in sealed cases with glass fronts and backs more than 150 years ago still survive. More than 100 species still survive. But in his late 40s, his life started falling apart. Both his wife, Eliza, and his 22-year-old daughter, Florida, died of tuberculosis. The family museum in Philadelphia failed, and the government was not interested in acquiring the specimens, so all the collections, including some of those Titian had personally collected from Maine to Columbia, were purchased by P.T. Barnum. And the collections were destroyed in Barnum's American Museum fire in July 1865. Titian started a new career with the Patent Office in Washington, D.C. And he took up the hobbies of photography and oil painting, at which, of course, he excelled. But he never again gained the renown he had had from 1830 to 1850. And when he died in 1885, he had slipped nearly into oblivion. In his 85 years, spanning nearly the entire 19th century, Titian had seen the astounding growth of taxonomic biology, the Smithsonian Institution, and the advent of Darwinism. He had observed the consolidation of the Lewis and Clark collection at his father's museum, the federal establishment of the National Museum in Washington, and had personally been on major expeditions to collect specimens from around the country and the world. He's buried at Laurel Hill Cemetery in Section 8, Lot 74, tragically in an unmarked grave. In the 21st century, when a Titian Ramsey Peel II watercolor comes on the market, it easily sells for more than $20,000. And in 2015, there was much excitement in the entomology world when the book, The Butterflies of North America, Titian Peel's Lost Manuscript, was published 130 years after his death. This manuscript, representing more than 50 years of work, had languished in the rare book collection of the American Museum of Natural History in New York City since it was donated by a family member in 1916. It is a breathtaking collection of more than 200 works of art. John Casson, 1813 to 1869. John Casson was born in the vicinity of Chester, Pennsylvania, on the banks of the Delaware River, some 10 miles below Philadelphia. It was at about the same time that his uncle, for whom he was named, was a Commodore in the U.S. Navy during the War of 1812. He came to Philadelphia at the age of 21 and soon became the head of a lithography establishment where later many of the plates illustrating his birds were produced. Casson came from a Quaker family. He was apparently not an active member of the society. John Casson married Hannah Wright in 1837. They had a daughter, Rachel, and a son, William. Casson joined the Academy of Natural Sciences of Philadelphia in September 1842 before he turned 30 and at once became deeply interested in its management. He was elected curator the same year. Curator is a fancy way of saying that he wasn't paid anything. He went on to serve as corresponding secretary from 1849 to 1852 and vice president in 1864. 
He also served for a time on the Philadelphia City Council. As an ornithologist, Casson occupied a rather unique position. Unlike Audubon, whose greatest work was in the field, Casson's greatest work was in the museum with specimens and books. In other words, he was a closet ornithologist. Unlike Titian Peel, who felt that birds should be displayed for the enjoyment of all, Casson preferred that they be kept away from prying eyes and filthy hands of the public. His unique bird skins were laid out in drawers like rows of socks and mothballs, far too valuable to be put on display for people. Casson's knowledge was not limited to the birds of North America, but extended equally to those of all other parts of the world, including Africa. He did his best work with birds of the American West and Southwest. Casson's great pleasure was not in writing up the life history of a bird, but in gathering all that had been published about it and its near relatives, and then preparing a monograph with full technical descriptions and synonymy of a group, using the different scientific names to designate the same taxonomic groups such as species. This was just the sort of work that Audubon found most distasteful. In the process, Casson turned taxonomy upside down. Because of his familiarity with both Old World and New World birds, he was the first to make many connections between the two that we now take for granted. He admitted that his task was difficult. Writing in July 1843, he said, It is hard work, this studying foreign birds, short technical descriptions, half the time in bad Latin, or at least written by one who could not find Latin for half the colors. And then again, nearly all our books are old, when the writers scarcely took into consideration the possibility of other species being discovered, similar to the one they so pithily characterize. But I intend to go on as far as I can, and would rather not stop until I know all the birds in the academy. It will be a work of years, however solitary and lonely as I labor, under disadvantages too, want of leisures and perplexities of business." Just how far Casson would have been able to pursue his studies is doubtful, were it not for Dr. Thomas Betterly Wilson, later president of the Academy and one of its greatest patrons. Dr. Wilson was interested in developing the Department of Ornithology, and from 1846 to 1850, he brought together from Europe a collection of some 25,000 birds, at that time the largest in the world. He also procured for the library practically every reference work that was to be had on the science of ornithology, vastly improving Casson's resources. With these exceptional opportunities, it is not surprising that Casson made rapid strides and soon became one of the leading systemic ornithologists in the world. And in 1847, he was made a life member of the Academy, since they had never paid him a dime and never would. We'll hear more about Dr. Wilson and his brother Rathmel Wilson later in the podcast. Casson was a volunteer naturalist. He still had to run a business. For months at a time, he would have to force himself to stay away from his beloved museum, where the attractions were too great for him, in order to mine the store, make money, support his family. 
when his partner lithographer John T. Bowen died in 1856, Casson became president of Bowen and Company, which at the time was the leader in natural history publications. The company had been deeply involved with the production of various projects by Audubon after he completed his double elephant edition of Birds of America, which had initially been published in Great Britain, as no American press could deal with a book of that size. At the time of Bowen's death, their firm was involved with the production of lithographs associated with the Western Railway Surveys, which contained many of John Casson's drawings. Casson was exceedingly careful in his bird work. He studied for many years before publishing. He only proposed new names when all efforts to match his specimen with an established species failed. This caution and the absence of the craze for new species accounts for the stability of most of the names for which he is responsible, as all but a handful of those identified well over 150 years ago are still recognized as authentic. What is now called the Cassinian period of American ornithology, largely by the work of Casson himself, is marked by its bookishness, by its breadth and scope in ornithology at large, and by the first decided change since Audubon in the classification and nomenclature of birds of our country. His best-known publication, Illustrations of the Birds of California, Texas, Oregon, British and Russian America, 1853 to 56, was intended as a supplement to Audubon's Birds of America, with 50 plates illustrating species that Audubon had missed. Interestingly, he and Audubon met only once, and they never collaborated on anything. Casson spent his entire ornithology career at the Academy, evenings, Sundays, and holidays in the museum, while his business demanded his attention at other times. During the last years of his active work, he occupied the back room of the library in the old academy building at Broad and Sansom Streets, where mounted birds and ornithological books were gathered together in large numbers, and where they remained accumulating dust until his work upon them was completed. There was an unwritten, though well-understood law of hands-off. Casson was a jealous man and claimed an absolute monopoly on the Wilson collection and in all matters ornithological at the institution. But he was not solely a closet naturalist. His love of nature was ever present and he did do field work all his life. To Casson, just as to Audubon, the most important part of the ornithologist's outfit was not the camera, which was still in an ungainly, crude state, or binoculars but the gun. To quote his own work, quote, bird collecting is the ultimate refinement. The main reliance is on the ear for the detection of birds by their notes, whether in the tangled forest, the deep recesses of the swamp, on the seacoast or in the clear woodlands, on the mountain or in the prairie, it advises one of what birds may be there. And we recognize no more exquisite pleasure than to hear a note that we are not acquainted with." End quote. During the time of his greatest activity, Casson was easily the best ornithologist in America. When his younger friend Spencer Fullerton Baird, another native Philadelphian, was made first curator of the Smithsonian Institute, he asked Casson to do the descriptions of large numbers of new birds which came into the National Institution. Late in life, 
Casson was fortunate to be able to devote most of his time to his favorite pursuit. And before his death from chronic arsenic poisoning at age 55 in 1869, he had described no fewer than 194 new species of birds. He was interred at Laurel Hill Cemetery, Section J, Lot 97. And today, five individual birds are named for him. He was truly a man who died for his work. And for 20 years after his death, work on his collection lay dormant and came close to ruin. Whitmer Stone, 1866 to 1939. When Whitmer Stone died in 1939, he had an extensive write-up in The Auk, a quarterly journal of ornithology, and in the Journal of Mammalogy, and in Bartonia, the journal of the Philadelphia Botanical Club. There's probably no other scientist of the 20th century who is acknowledged as a leader in so many disciplines. Whitmer Stone was born in Philadelphia in 1866 to Frederick Dawson Stone and Anne Evelina Whitmer. Frederick was a well-known historian who for a time served as the librarian at the Historical Society of Pennsylvania and received the honorary degree of Doctor of Letters from the University of Pennsylvania in 1895. Whitmer attended Germantown Academy from 1877 to 1883 and then enrolled at the University of Pennsylvania where he graduated with the class of 1887. According to the Penn Yearbook, he was an excellent scholar, but he did not have many activities outside of the classroom. Following his graduation, Stone began postgraduate academic work at Penn and was hired as a Jessup Fund student at the Academy of Natural Sciences in 1888. The Jessup Fund had been established in 1860 by the family of Augustus E. Jessup as, quote, $480 per annum to be used for the support of one or more deserving poor young man or men who may desire to devote the whole of his or their time and energies to the study of the natural sciences, end quote. It still exists, although it is now part of the Jessup McHenry Fund. Whitmer, the recent college graduate, was put in charge of the Academy's massive collection of birds. It had fallen into disarray since the death of Casson in 1869. And for the next 50 years, Whitmer Stone worked to better classify and store the Academy's spectacular collection of birds, preserving the collection and enabling it to endure. The administration of the Academy of Natural Sciences quickly became impressed with Stone's work and allowed him to lead an expedition to Central America in 1890 to study bird life there. Soon after he returned to the United States, he completed his work on his master's degree and received the degree of Master of Arts in 1891, the same year he was promoted to conservator of the ornithological section of the Academy of Natural Sciences, a position he held until 1918. Stone continued to advance through the administrative hierarchy of the Academy of Natural Sciences. In 1893, he was named Assistant Curator of the Academy's Museum and retained that position until 1908 when he was promoted to Curator. In 1918, Stone was again promoted, this time to Executive Curator and Curator of Vertebrates. 
He held the position of executive curator until he was named director of the Academy of Natural Sciences in 1925. In 1927, Stone was named vice president of the Academy, a position he held until his death. Stone's last appointment at the Academy was that of director emeritus, a position he held following his resignation as director in 1929 until his death 10 years later. Stone's career was mainly focused on his study of birds and their migratory patterns. He was so well known in this field that a wildlife sanctuary at Cape May Point, New Jersey was named in his honor by the National Association of Audubon Societies. The sanctuary is a popular stopping point for several species of birds during their migrations to and from the southern United States. In 1938, Stone published Bird Studies at Old Cape May, a two-volume, 900-page tome, which was essentially the culmination of his life's work. In recognition of the book's contribution to the study of ornithology, Stone was posthumously awarded the Brewster Memorial Medal by the American Association of Ornithologists in 1939. That was far from the only award Stone received for his work. In 1913, he was honored by his alma mater with the presentation of the honorary degree of Doctor of Science. And in 1931, he was awarded the Otto Hermann Medal by the Hungarian Ornithological Society in recognition of his work. The Hermann Medal is the highest honor bestowed by that society. Even after receiving numerous awards and honors and being named the director of the Academy of Natural Sciences, Stone still found time for his alma mater, serving as a special lecturer in zoology from 1927 until his death in 1939. He was awarded the Alumni Award of Merit at the class of 1887's 50th reunion in May 1937. During his distinguished career, Stone was a member of more than 15 academic clubs and societies. He served as president of the American Society of Mammalogists, the Pennsylvania Audubon Society, the Delaware Valley Ornithological Society, which he also helped found, and the American Ornithologist Society. Stone also edited the journal of the latter society, the AUK, from 1912 until 1936. He was also a member of the American Philosophical Society, the Philadelphia Botanist Club, the American Association for the Advancement of Science, the British Ornithologist Union, the Zoological Society of Philadelphia, and the prestigious International Committee on Zoological Nomenclature. Whitmer Stone died on May 23, 1939 at Germantown Hospital, not far from his home at 452 Church Lane. He had been ill with prostate cancer for several months before his death. He was buried at Laurel Hill Cemetery, Section P, Lot 50. Joseph Parker Norris, 1847-1916, and Joseph Parker Norris, Jr., 1871-1931. Oology, or the art of collecting and studying eggs, was a rich man's hobby in Victorian times. Egg collection, also called egging or bird nesting, took many special skills. Not only did you have to be a bird watcher, but you had to follow them to the trees where they had built their nests. Then you had to know when eggs were present, 
and then you had to climb the tree to retrieve the eggs and you had to protect the eggs to get them back to your collection and then you had to put a tiny pinhole in the egg and blow out the contents otherwise they would go rotten most collectors of eggs are today acknowledged as being somewhat obsessive compulsive and eccentric egging was far bigger in victorian england than it was in the united states and british collections dwarf ours the natural history museum at tring in england contains the largest collection in the world hundreds of thousands of egg examples from an estimated 52 percent of all bird species that ever existed in the smithsonian institution there are more than 130,000 eggs collected from nests all over the world by a multitude of amateur oologists in 1954, with museums' collections already overflowing and concern growing over the impact egging might have on existing bird populations, the English government outlawed the activity. Legitimate scientists can, on rare occasions, still get permits to collect eggs, but the age of the egger finally came to the end in the mid-20th century, from a legal standpoint at least. However, damage had been done. The extinction in the 1980s of the red-backed shrike, which had the misfortune to lay pretty speckled eggs, was attributed to egg collectors. The best story of an egger that I found took place in the American West. It's 1872. U.S. Army Major Charles Bendire, soldier and ornithologist, was leading troops on patrol in an area of central Arizona amid heated tensions with the local Apaches. When they arrived at a good campsite, he peered through his binoculars and noticed the nest of a zone-tailed hawk in the high branches of a nearby tree. Bendire left his troops where they were sitting up camp, and he rode out alone to the tree. He had to get one of those rare eggs. After hitching his horse to the base, he skillfully climbed the tree while keeping an eye out for possible hostile forces. But after he got his hands on one of the sizable eggs, he was apparently overcome with excitement and did not notice what an Apache scout approached until a bullet whizzed past his head. The Major panicked. He jammed the egg into his mouth so he could use both hands to quickly scramble down the tree. Then he hurried back to the safety of camp. When he arrived, Ben Dyer found that he had developed trismus, spasm of the muscles of mastication, from the strain of opening his mouth wide enough for the egg and then holding it in a way to avoid cracking it. He was intent on protecting this egg at all costs. Ben Dyer ordered his men to pry open his jaw and safely retrieve the egg. They had no choice. Finally, they managed to forcefully wrench his mouth open and get the egg. They broke off at least one of his teeth in the process. But that egg became one of Bendire's most prized possessions. It was among his eventual collection of 8,000 eggs, which he donated to the Smithsonian when he became their first curator of oology. Charles Bendire is buried at Arlington. The next time I am there, I plan to leave an egg on his tombstone. And yes, that hawk eggshell is still at the Smithsonian. Our Philadelphia oology story starts with Joseph Parker Norris, 1847 to 1916. 
He was an 1867 graduate of the University of Pennsylvania and then a prosperous attorney. Joseph had two hobbies. As an oologist, he was acknowledged to have one of the finest eggshell collections in the country by the time he was in his mid-twenties. He contributed several articles to the magazine The Country Gentleman from 1863 to 1867, and he wrote the introduction to Davies' Nests and Eggs of North American Birds in 1889. He was an associate of the American Ornithologist Union and an editor for Ornithologist and Oologist. His other hobby was Shakespeare. In 1875, he established a letter-writing relationship with Joseph Crosby of Zanesville, Ohio, one of the three great American Shakespearean scholars of the 19th century. Norris and Crosby owned two of the three best Shakespearean libraries in private hands in the United States. The third and best belonged to Philadelphian Horace Howard Furness. 1833 to 1912. He's buried at Laurel Hill Cemetery, Section T7. He and Norris were close friends. Letters from Crosby to Norris have been published as One Touch of Shakespeare, Letters of Joseph Crosby to Joseph Parker Norris, 1875 to 1878. Shakespeare scholars consider them invaluable. Norris was a fan rather than a scholar. He wrote quirky monographs like Portraits of Shakespeare, 1884, and The Death Mask of Shakespeare, also 1884. He also took up lost causes. For instance, he pushed for the opening of Shakespeare's grave to authenticate his death mask. He wrote an article, 1884, Shall We Open Shakespeare's Grave, in Manhattan Illustrated Monthly Magazine, issue 19, pages 71 to 76. He seems to have developed a bit of a fetish about disinterring Shakespeare and actually gazing on his skull, photographing it, and even subjecting it to phrenological assessment. The London Evening Telegraph called him a bone grubber. Joseph Parker Norris Sr. died in 1916 of chronic interstitial nephritis complicated by diabetes. Joseph Parker Norris Jr., 1871 to 1931, or J. Parker as he was known, continued his father's interest in eggs and became a noted oologist on his own. He co-published the catalog of the oological collection of J. Parker Norris and J. Parker Norris Jr. privately in 1894. He was a member of the Racket Club, the Society of Colonial Governors, the Historical Society of Pennsylvania, and the Pennsylvania Society Sons of the Revolution. In April of 1904, Parker, at age 33, was one of 110 society bachelors to give a ball mask at the Roosevelt, 2017 Chestnut Street. He soon took control and is now considered the founder of this dashing social event which was presented every Shrove Tuesday to mark the end of the winter social season in Philadelphia just before Lent. It became one of the most coveted invitations in the city among the smart set. After Parker's marriage, it was no longer a ball strictly for bachelors, but open to all members of the upper crust by invitation only. Each year, Norris and the other hosts tried to outdo the prior year, and the society columns of Philadelphia newspapers were more than happy to give them press coverage. 
One year, at the traditional 1 a.m. trumpet call and unmasking, dozens of white mice were released on the dance floor. If you were to assemble the society page write-ups year after year for the ball mask, they would be a marvelous document of decadence in high society Philadelphia. The high point was in 1924. The Roaring 20s were still in full swing and the country was in its fifth year of prohibition. Newly elected Philadelphia Mayor W. Freeland Kendrick asked President Calvin Coolidge to loan the city a military general to help him rid Philadelphia's municipal government of crime and corruption. Coolidge authorized two-time Medal of Honor recipient Marine General Smedley Butler who had been born and raised in Westchester, Pennsylvania, to take the leave from the Corps and serve as Philadelphia's Director of Public Safety in charge of running the city's police and fire departments from January 1924 until December 1925. Within 48 hours of taking over, Butler organized raids on more than 900 speakeasies in the city, ordering them padlocked or destroyed. In addition, he attempted to eliminate bootlegging, prostitution, gambling, and police corruption. And it wasn't just the working classes he was after. He ordered crackdowns on the social elite's favorite hangouts, like the Ritz-Carlton and the Union League. The ball mask in 1924 was March 5th at the Bellevue Stratford. Butler swore he would keep it dry. J. Parker Norris Jr. had been warned he sent notices to expected attendees that liquor would be off limits and people with hip flasks would probably be arrested. And the newspapers had a field day reporting the shenanigans. Quote, Society girls in ballet costumes and some in even flimsier attire drew hundreds of spectators to Broad and Walnut Streets when the famous ball mask was turned into a sort of hide-and-seek with the Ritz-Carlton and the Bellevue Stratford as bases. Incensed at the presence of detectives sent to mar the festivities by General Butler despite a formal written protest, guests of the dance sought to bewilder the sleuths by shifting from one hotel to another. Many of the guests of the ball staged their dinner parties in the dining room of the Ritz-Carlton, and others had private rooms in that hotel to which they made frequent sorties from the Bellevue. When the dancing started, four detectives in plain clothing insisted in getting into the ballroom, although just before it had been understood that they were to work from the corridors. The detectives were the only persons on the dance floor not in costume. These men are here in spite of a formal written protest lodged at City Hall today on behalf of the committee in charge of this private dance, said Joseph Parker Norris, chairman of the Ball Mask Committee. Such a protest was lodged by our attorney. I went with him to file it. In the protest, we pointed out this is not a public affair. It is a subscription dance, and before tickets are issued to any pay subscriber, his name must be passed on by a committee. Mr. Norris and other members of the committee made no effort to conceal their resentment at the presence of the uncostumed detectives. The chairman was asked whether they had picked men with social graces who might be expected to make themselves as inconspicuous as possible under the circumstances. No, 
they're just plain harness bulls. Are they dancing? I doubt it, Norris answered, looking toward the ballroom. I haven't heard any crashes. The shifting back and forth between the two hotels became so frequent by 11 o'clock that several hundred spectators filled Broad Street. At first, the girls and their escorts stopped for cloaks and overcoats before making the passage of Broad Street. Then, when it became part of the game, they just ran out in costume. Some of the costumes were extraordinarily flimsy for streetwear, and the crowd gasped. But the girls turned pirouettes in the street and merely laughed. End quote. That is far from the entire write-up. The entire write-up is hysterical. The ball mask continued after Smedley Butler left town and in 1930 was back in full swing with 1,000 attendants. J. Parker Norris Jr. did not outlive Prohibition. He died on January 18, 1931 after a long battle with spinal cancer. And after the 1931 ball mask had been canceled because of his serious condition. He was buried at Laurel Hill Cemetery in the family plot, Section K, Lot 63, on January 20th, where his father had been buried many years before. The next time you visit Laurel Hill, leave an egg on their stone. Dr. John Lawrence LeConte, 1825-1883, buried at West Laurel Hill Cemetery, and Dr. George Henry Horn, 1840-1897, buried at Laurel Hill Cemetery. There is no doubt that Thomas Say, 1787-1834, is the father of American entomology. Great-grandson of John Bartram, he was a founding member of the Academy of Natural Sciences of Philadelphia and served as their librarian as well as curator at the American Philosophical Society and professor of natural history at the University of Pennsylvania. He served as zoologist on the 1819-1820 long expedition along with Titian Peale. Say was tempted away from Philadelphia by the utopian community of New Harmony, Indiana, along with a few other Academy founders and members. He died in Indiana of typhoid fever at age 47 and is buried there. The next generation of American entomologists was led by Dr. John Lawrence LeConte, who was joined by his friend and acolyte, Dr. George Henry Horn. LeConte was born in New York. His father, Major John C. LeConte, was an entomologist. After attending St. Mary's College in Maryland, he received his M.D. from the College of Physicians and Surgeons in New York in 1846. While in medical school, he published his first article on entomology. He moved to Philadelphia several years later, married Miss Helen Greer when he was 36, and retired from medicine temporarily. But during the Civil War, he was forced back into medicine and was a lieutenant colonel and medical inspector in the Union Army. He took various jobs after the war that allowed him to continue his collecting and studies, including visits to Europe, Algiers, and Egypt. From 1878 until his death five years later, he served as chief clerk in the United States Mint in Philadelphia. He was able to dedicate the rest of his time to entomology. His chosen specialty was Coleoptera, the study of beetles. 
The Coleoptera, with about 400,000 species, is the largest of all orders, constituting almost 40% of described insects and 25% of all known animal life forms. New species are still discovered frequently. Entomology in the United States was in its infancy when LeConte started his work. There were fewer entomologists in the entire country than could be found in any major European city. There were no public collections and only a few limited-sized collections in private hands. Even the larger libraries were scant of entomological literature. And Say's collection had been scattered to the winds after his death. LeConte took for himself the same thankless task that Casson had taken in ornithology. Identify and correctly interpret descriptions of the thousands of species of beetles in the world. And mere descriptions of new species in genera would not be enough. LeConte would be required to do tedious, exacting work to determine whether what he was seeing was truly a new finding. In 1861, the first edition of his classification of the Coleoptera of North America appeared from the Smithsonian Institution. Its completion took more than 35 years. His writings were interrupted by war. When he resumed, he had gained the cooperation and friendship of Dr. George Henry Horn, who from the beginning of his entomological career was a faithful co-laborer. Even when some of Horn's work proved more advanced and thorough and undid what LeConte had already done, LeConte gladly accepted the corrections and continued to promote the work of his acolyte. By the time the second edition of Classification was published, it was co-authored by LeConte and Horn. LeConte wrote more than scientific classifications. Two of his more useful works were Hints for the Promotion of Economic Entomology in the United States, and Methods for Subduing Insects Injurious to Agriculture. He was actively interested in endeavors to elevate the United States Department of Agriculture and was a candidate for the Office of Commissioner in 1877. He served as President of the American Association for the Advancement of Sciences in 1874 and was the first President of the Entomological Club of that association. His reputation was not limited to the United States, and LeConte was the first American elected to honorary membership of the Entomological Society of France. In 1883, he traveled to California for his health, but he died there shortly after his arrival. His body was returned to Philadelphia, and he was buried at West Laurel Hill Cemetery, River Section, Lot 5. When he died, the American Entomological Society was in no position to appreciate or properly care for his collection, so he left it to the Museum of Comparative Zoology at Cambridge, Massachusetts. And rather than going to a library, his collection of reference books was sold at auction after his death. George Henry Horn was born in Philadelphia in 1840. In 1853, he entered Central High School, then located on the east side of Juniper Street below Market, but transferred in the summer of 1854 to the southeast corner of Broad and Green Streets. Soon after leaving high school, he matriculated in the medical department of the University of Pennsylvania, receiving his M.D. in March 1861, a month before the beginning of the Civil War. 
Horn's work in zoology began while he was still a student in medical school. It was about beetles. Other papers followed on beetles and corals. In 1861, he went to California, and in 1862, he volunteered for service, being discharged in 1865 with the rank of major. When he returned to Philadelphia in 1866, he was elected president of the Entomological Society. He continued to practice medicine as an obstetrician. In spring and summer of 1874, he went to Europe, studying the large collections in London and Paris. He returned in 1882 and 1888, adding a visit to the Berlin Museum. In 1889, the Board of Trustees of the University of Pennsylvania was petitioned to establish a professorship of entomology, suggesting Dr. Horn as its first in this position. Dr. Edward Drinker Cope had just been elected chair of mineralogy and geology. Horn started having health problems in 1895, and he was stricken with paralysis while playing cards at the Entomological Society in late December 1896. While he rallied somewhat, he never fully recovered, and within a year he had died in November 1897. He was buried in his father's plot in Central Laurel Hill Cemetery, Section U, Lots U-17, 18, 21, 22. In the beautiful, massive, 400-plus page publication, A Glorious Enterprise, the Academy of Natural Sciences of Philadelphia and the Making of American Science by Robert McCracken Peck and Patricia Tyson Stroud, which I highly recommend, by the way. Dr. LeConte gets one mention, and Dr. Horn has no mention whatsoever. They are both extremely important scientists who brought forward the specialty of entomology during the 19th century. Thomas B. Wilson, 1807-1865, Rathmel Wilson, 1810-1890. Thomas Bellerby Wilson was born in Philadelphia in 1807, the son of wealthy British parents Edward Wilson, a Quaker and iron merchant who made a fortune in the Liverpool-Philadelphia iron trade, and Rebecca Bellerby Wilson, whom he had married in 1802. After attending a Quaker school in Philadelphia, Thomas studied in England, Paris, and Dublin. By 1822, he had returned to America and was apprenticed to a pharmacist in Philadelphia. By 1830, at age 23, he had received his M.D. from the University of Pennsylvania. But, being of independent means, he never practiced medicine. He initially received a comfortable allowance from his father and got a very generous inheritance when his father died. Thomas thus had time to study the natural sciences. Thomas lived in Philadelphia until he was 26. Then he moved to a farm near New London in Chester County, Pennsylvania. Around 1841, his younger brother Rathmel moved to Newark, Delaware with his wife and two children, and Thomas joined them. Although Newark remained the base of his operations for the rest of his life, he regularly visited Philadelphia and maintained a residence there for when he was attending society meetings, buying books, or tending to his investments. Thomas made many long field trips on horseback, collecting minerals, fossils, shells, birds, reptiles, fish, 
and insects. He invested his inheritance well and was generous with his donations, purchasing entire collections of specimens, along with pertinent books on the subjects, both by mail and during his five trips to Europe. He joined the Academy of Natural Sciences in 1832 and was the Academy's principal benefactor, eventually donating about $200,000. That's now equivalent to about $6 million. Some of this donation was in the form of more than 15,000 volumes for the Academy Library and the 26,000 birds. The bird collection was so large that Thomas had to donate funds to enlarge the Academy's building. Thomas had purchased much of this through his brother Edward, who had moved to Europe and served there as his agent. This was the collection upon which John Casson based his famed studies. Thomas also donated an excellent collection of minerals to the Academy, along with various other natural history objects. He served as their president in 1863-1864. Thomas was also one of the founders of the American Entomological Society in 1859 and gave them about $26,000, that's nearly $860,000 today, to launch and sustain it. He also donated freely to the Historical Society of Philadelphia and the Philadelphia Medical Society, but always with the stipulation that if his anonymity in these gifts was not maintained, he would make no further donations. It may be for this reason that there is so little information about him available online. The headquarters of the American Entomological Society remains in Philadelphia. It's at 1900 Benjamin Franklin Parkway at the Academy of Natural Sciences, where it has been located since 1875. Thomas B. Wilson never married. He died after a short illness at age 58 in 1865 in Newark, Delaware. As his condition worsened, it was finally recognized as typhus. This is not typhoid. Typhoid is caused by another bacterium. In fact, the term typhoid means typhus-like. Typhus is caused by a form of atypical bacteria called rickettsia, and it is frequently epidemic during wars. Remember, at the time of his death, the Civil War had been raging for four years. It was not until many years later that the transmitting agent of this rickettsial disease was identified as a body louse. So Thomas B. Wilson, who had given so much of his time and funds to advance man's knowledge in entomology, was killed by a small insect. He was buried in the south section of Laurel Hill Cemetery. Younger brother Rathmel Wilson built the estate of Oaklands near Newark, Delaware. He owned interests in and operated coal mines, and he invested in railways selling land to the Baltimore and Pennsylvania line, which passes through Newark, Delaware. He served as the acting president of Newark College from 1859 to 1870. That includes the years the facility was closed during the Civil War. Along with Thomas, Rathmel was a major benefactor of the American Entomological Society. Rathmel was listed as a member of the AES in 1867 and contributed $6,000 in that year. He also saw that Thomas's books and insects were given to the AES after his brother's death. When Rathmel died in 1890, he too was buried in the family plot at Laurel Hill Cemetery. The family motto, res non verba, actions not words, is engraved on their granite gravestone 
at Laurel Hill Cemetery, Section 9, Lots 106 and 108. They lived by their motto. The Wilson family quietly but enormously advanced the natural sciences, especially ornithology and entomology, during their critical formative years in Philadelphia and the United States. Next time in the February 2021 edition of All Bones Considered, Laurel Hill Stories, it's the Philadelphia Sound. High Lit graced the radio airwaves of Philadelphia for more than 50 years and is remembered by anyone who grew up in the area listening to radio. Questlove once called Billy Paul one of the criminally unmentioned proprietors of socially conscious post-revolution 60s civil rights music. Teddy Pendergrass started as drummer with Harold Melvin and the Blue Notes, but quickly moved to being lead vocalist. And Grover Washington Jr. is considered one of the fathers of smooth jazz. All four are buried at West Laurel Hill Cemetery in Ballakinwood. I will cover them in next month's podcast. Cemetery is located at 3822 Ridge Avenue in the East Falls section of Philadelphia. It's just a block from the SEPTA 61 bus stop at Ridge and Allegheny. Admission is free, as is parking in the lot across the street. West Laurel Hill Cemetery is at 225 Belmont Avenue in Ballakinwood, with parking available at the main entrance and at the bell tower. Both Laurel Hill Cemetery and West Laurel Hill Cemetery are open from 7 a.m. to 7 p.m. from May to October and from 7 a.m. to 5 p.m. November through April. We welcome dog walkers, bike riders, photographers, bird watchers, nature buffs, and strollers, both the two-footed and four-wheeled variety. As I record this, I am unsure when we will restart doing live tours. There is another declaration of limited activity by the governor of Pennsylvania. But we definitely have frequent pay-what-you-wish virtual tours. Find out more at thelaurelhillcemetery.org or westlaurelhill.com. Here's more to satisfy your curiosity. laurelhillcemetery.blog, where you can read about even more interesting people. And if you follow us on Instagram, you'll get a daily reminder of our inhabitants and activities. And if that's not enough, check out the virtual tours I have done on YouTube. Laurel Hill Cemetery, Hotspots and Storied Plots, Virtual Tour Number 1 gives you an overview of some of my personal favorites, and All Bones Considered Laurel Hill Stories as a video podcast number one that I did on illustrator A.B. Frost and his family. And once you've fallen in love with these hot spots, become a friend of Laurel Hill and West Laurel Hill, and you will have the opportunity for several members-only special tours conducted each year. They may be cemeteries, but they are a couple of the liveliest spots in town. I'm Joe Lex, retired professor of emergency medicine at Temple University, reminding you to keep body and soul together until next time on All Bones Considered Laurel Hill Stories where the plot thickens. Stick around if you want to hear the references for this show. Stay safe, stay well.
this is one of those podcasts that just kept growing. I initially planned to talk about four or maybe five people, but I found others that I couldn't ignore. It ended up being 10 people. Either I couldn't ignore them or their stories were just too good to let go. I had many, many references for this. First of all, The Development of Taxidermy and the History of Ornithology by Paul Lawrence Farber. It was published in Isis, Volume 68, Number 4, December 1977, pages 550 to 566. John Casson, Cassinia, A Bird Annual. Proceedings of the Delaware Valley Ornithological Club of Philadelphia by Whitmer Stone, 1901, pages 1 through 8. Titian Ramsey Peel, an American naturalist and lithographer, by Dorothy M. Gall, Yale University Art Gallery Bulletin, volume 38, number 3, winter, 1983, pages 6 through 13. The Life Work of Titian Ramsey Peel by Charlotte M. Porter. Proceedings of the American Philosophical Society, Volume 129, Number 3, September 1985, pages 300 through 312. The Botanical Work of Whitmer Stone by Francis W. Pennell, Bartonia, Number 20, 1938-39, pages 33 through 37. Whitmer Stone, 1866-1939, by Horton Huber. Journal of Mammalogy, Volume 21, Number 1, February 1940. In Memoriam, Whitmer Stone by James A.G. Wren, The Auk, Volume 58, Number 3, July 1941, pages 299 to 313. The Death Mask of Shakespeare by J. Parker Norris, Franklin Printing House, Philadelphia, 1884. Various editions of the Philadelphia Inquirer from 1906 to 1930. In particular, Ball Mask Gay Despite Presence of Police Guard, the Philadelphia Inquirer, 5 March 1924, pages 1 and 4. Memoir of John Lawrence Lacotte, 1825 to 1883, by Samuel H. Scudder. It was read before the National Academy on 17th of April, 1884. John Lawrence LeConte, no author. The Coleopterus Bulletin, Volume 1, Numbers 4-5, August 1947, pages 46 to 48. A Biographical Notice of George Henry Horn by Philip P. Calvert. Transactions of the American Entomological Society, April 1898. Pages Roman numeral 1 through 24. And finally, The History of the American Entomological Society by Harry W. Allen. Transactions of the American Entomological Society, Volume 85, Number 4, December 1959, pages 335 through 372. Until February, stay safe, stay well.